if you've been following along the last couple of weeks, you'll know we've kind of found ourselves in this impromptu series on prayer. Um, I say uh, impromptu in like an earthly sense because uh, we didn't really plan to be in this, but I'm, I'm, I'm really confident that the Lord has uh, sovereignly kind of directed us and, and planned this uh, because we need it. Um, and uh, although we're going to kind of wrap this kind of mini-series on prayer up this morning, Next week, we're going to move on to Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, there's more to come, um, so, so be prepared for that. Um, we, uh, we're going to be a church that prays. We're going to figure that out um, over the next while. So um, here's how the last three weeks have, have kind of played out. Um, week one, uh, we looked at the, uh, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke, 8, Luke 18, um, it, and that week showed us what our prayers should be like, should be bold. They should be persistent. Uh, they should be desperate. And um, week two, Psalm 34, uh, showed us what our prayers should consist of. Um, not an exhaustive list, but in Psalm 34, you see five things that, that show up in prayer. Uh, adoring, seeking, enjoying, uh, showing, and being. Um, if you missed those first two weeks, uh, go, back and, go back and listen to them. I'm not going to give a big recap this morning because I want to jump straight into the third uh, the third week, what we're going to cover today, which is really important. Um, and today, we want to try to answer this important and pretty difficult question. So I hope you have your, maybe we should have served coffee first thing rather than after this morning, but um, we're going to try to answer the question, why pray? Um, because here's the issue. If God is sovereign, then why pray? Um, if God has this plan that he is sovereignly working out, then why are we praying? Um, if we believe that God is sovereign over eternity, and, and the Bible teaches that, right? Hebrews 1.11 says Jesus upholds the universe uh, with the word of his power. Um, Ephesians 1.11 says Jesus works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Um, Colossians 1.17, that all things are created uh, uh, through Jesus and for him. He is before them all. In him, all things hold together. So if, if, if those things are true and, and that God is sovereignly holding all things together, nothing happens outside of his control, and that he has this plan that he's working out, then why are we praying? Um, what's our motivation for prayer? Um, in other words, do our prayers change God's plans? Um, do, do what we say to God, does that convince him to do something that he otherwise wouldn't have done. Why pray? Um, there's a really simple answer to that question, uh, and sometimes the simple answer is to just be sufficient because we are simple compared to God. Um, the simple answer is uh, we pray because we're commanded to, because he tells us to, he asks us to. Um, one of many instances is Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but uh, by in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we pray because he, he tells us to. He asks us to. We're commanded to pray, so we pray. Uh, but then there's a deeper reason. And the deeper answer to the question of why pray is we pray because prayer is the means by which God has appointed to accomplish his purposes. Prayer is the means by which God has appointed to accomplish his purposes. So that's the kind of thesis of the sermon this morning. Um, and, and that's not an easy truth to wrap our finite minds around, right? Um, but I believe that once we begin to understand that, um, we'll see it's a beautiful truth. 
Um, it, it's, it's an exciting truth. It's an incredible truth. Um, so this morning, my goal is to just help us understand that a little better um, and to see the beauty of it. Um, quick note before we dive in. Um, Isaiah 55, it's this really uh, special invitation to, to draw near to God, um, to, to, uh, to enjoy Him, to, to come close to Him and to know Him, while at the very same time uh, maintaining this knowledge that He's, he's kind of unknowable. Um, that, that chapter says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. says that. But then God declares this. He says, But my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my, my ways your ways. For as, the, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. Um, and so that's, that's a beautiful passage that actually invites two things to happen at once. Um, that, to realize that, that, that God's ways are, are higher than our ways like the heavens that it talks about is the, the, the physical heavens out there, like the stars that, that we can hardly comprehend, even with mathematics, how far they are away from us. Um, that, that infinite distance in our minds. Um, the point is that you'll not be able to fully understand this infinite God. That's true at the same time as this infinite God inviting you to come close, inviting you to, to, to come enjoy Him to understand him. Um, it's a lovely and humbling piece of scripture, isn't it? Um, and we want to begin there. We want to begin right there. Um, let's start with that, that eagerness to draw near and to seek him while also having that humility, um, knowing that his ways are far above our ways. Um, and it's with that eager humility um, that I'll ask the question again. Uh, do our prayers alter God's plans? It depends on what you mean. Um, the, the simplest answer is no. We don't command God to do anything, right? Um, we, don't, we don't offer God a new perspective. Um, so um, lately, one of the, the, the main lessons I've been learning um, as a leader is humbly listening and, and trying to see other people's perspectives that's a really important um, uh, thing for a leader, especially for like an elder of a church to do, to, to realize that I don't, I don't know it all. I don't see it all. I need to see other people's perspectives. I need to, to, to kind of get the bigger picture. Um, but that's not the kind of leader that God is at all. Um, he, he listens. He's the best listener. Uh, but in our conversations, we, we never offer him a new perspective, okay? He, he's never in our prayers. He never thinks, oh, I forgot about that, or, or I didn't think of it that way. Um, he is the alpha. He's the omega. He's, he's the beginning and the end. He's, he's omniscient. He's, he's all-knowing. Psalm 147 says his understanding is infinite. Psalm 139 says, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. So, so never in our prayers to God does he say, I didn't think of it that way. And he's perfect in his understanding. He's perfect in his knowledge. Um, Ephesians 1, he's working all things according to the counsel of his, wills, his will. So our prayers don't command him. But that's the simple answer, which leads you to a, a deeper, a more kind of difficult question, which is the question we're going to try to tackle today. Well, well, then why pray? 
Um, If God is all-knowing, if he is sovereignly working out his plans, why even do all that we've been talking about the last two weeks? Why would I get up early in the morning and pray? Why would I carve out these special times to pray boldly and to pray persistently? Why would I do all of that if everything's pretty much mapped out already? And you know, I think that's a really valid question. I think it's a really important one to ask. Um, and so we're going to try to answer that question by going back in history a few thousand years to Exodus 32, where we see that the prayer does change God's mind, sort of, okay? Let me pray one more time, and we'll, we'll look at Psalm, uh, Exodus 32. Um, uh, God, we just want to come before you uh, with a eager humility, and we thank you that you, you invite us to come close to you. Um, this year, this perfect heavenly Father, inviting your children uh, to come and enjoy you, to come and understand what they can understand. And would you, would you teach us this morning, Lord? Would you show us yourself? And Lord, would you make us a church that prays? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, Exodus 32, um, let me set the scene for you again and remind you what's going on here. Um, Most of you know the story of the Exodus, um, but at this point in the story, God's rescued his people out of 400 years plus of slavery in Egypt. Um, Moses is their appointed leader. He's he's leading them along the way, and they're on their way to the promised land. Um, And under God's command, they've stopped at Mount Sinai to to worship God. So if any of you guys were at the guys' day yesterday, um, we... We were at Mount Sinai, and so some of this should be in your minds already. Uh, but God has brought them there to, to invite them into this covenant relationship, this covenant union with him. Um, and, and they're here, and they're camped out at the foot of the mountain. And, and, and Moses is up on the mountain uh, talking with God, and he's receiving a lot from God. Um, he's receiving the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. Uh, he's, God's given him the designs for the tabernacle where God will dwell amongst his people, um, and, and we're told apparently it's, it's taking a little while. Uh, Moses has, has been up there. He's been gone longer than the people expected. And they're getting anxious. They, they begin to fear. And they, they decide that, that Moses and God have abandoned them. Which if you know the story, it should make your eyes roll a little bit. It's a completely ridiculous um, conclusion to come to because God has, has just delivered them from uh, 400 years of slavery under the world's most powerful empire at the time. And he, and he did that through 10 miraculous plagues. It's, it's almost like comical, ridiculous set of events. He has delivered them from slavery. And then he splits the sea and they walk through the sea to, to safety. And then he leads them with this fire, this pillar of fire and smoke. Um, and then he sustains them on their journey through the wilderness with, uh, with, with, with meat and miraculous bread that falls from the sky and, and water comes out of, of, of rocks and things like this. But they've somehow quickly forgotten all of that. And they gather together and they decide we can no longer trust God. This God who's just delivered them and nurtured them every step of the way, they decide he's no longer sufficient so they need a new, more capable God. Um, and and they, they melt down their earrings and their jewelry and they make this, this golden calf. They mold this, this new God for themselves. This God that they can uh, carry around for their protection and, and, and isn't going to leave their presence. And they worship this idol. That's what's happening at the foot of the mountain. Meanwhile, uh, back at the top of the mountain, uh, God, 
who again is omniscient. He, he, he knows all of this. He's, he's aware of the adultery and the idolatry that's happening at the foot of the mountain. He says to Moses in verse 7, he says, Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Sounds like a pretty firm plan, doesn't it? Get out of my way, Moses. Um, I've had enough. My mind is made up. And be careful because we can sometimes read just this and we can think, how, how impatient of God, how fickle is God, right? But remember, this isn't a one-off occurrence with Israel. It's over and over. Israel has showed their, their faith, faithlessness. That they're constantly finding ways of rejecting God. He keeps inviting them in. He keeps giving himself to them and they keep rejecting him. So, so God's not being fickle in this moment. Israel is incredibly fickle. They keep saying, yes, be our God, and then immediately turning their backs on him. And he's been patient. He is slow to his, his anger. But his righteous anger finally flares up, and he says, I've had enough. And how does Moses respond? He, he reasons with God to change his mind. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, oh, with, e with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And he asks God this. He says, will you turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses responds to God by asking him to change his mind. Um, he's being quite brash. He's being quite bold. Uh, depending on the tone you want to read it with, he's almost being a little cheeky. Um, I don't think it's cheek, I think it's boldness. But, but notice in verse 7, God says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have defiled themselves. But then Moses quickly replies, my people? God, th these aren't my people, they're, they're your people. Th th I didn't bring them out of Egypt, you did. But by your great power, by your great hand. And he asks him, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. That's what he asks him to do. And, and notice the basis of his request to change his mind from destroying them. Circle that word remember in verse 13. That's, that's the basis of his request to change God's mind. He says, remember God. And what does he want God to remember? Two things. Firstly, remember who these people are. 
This is Abraham's family. And secondly, remember the promise that you made to this family. You, you promised to multiply them. Well, here they are. You're going to destroy them. You, t- you said you're going to multiply them. You, you promised them this land. You promised them this eternal inheritance. Remember that. And how does God respond? Verse 14 starts with probably the four most jarring words in the book of Exodus. And the Lord relented. The Lord relented. That word relented, it literally means repented. He, he changed his mind. And I think it's important to just read it at face value at the start. Okay, don't jump to the theology. Don't try to explain it away. The writer of Exodus, which is Moses, by the way, he's, he's writing this, and he, he, would have us to, he would have us believe that God was intending to do one thing in verse 7 until Moses persuaded him to do the opposite in verse 11 to 13. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people and if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that when, when God speaks, things happen. Like this is the God who speaks and galaxies are just created. He, he speaks a word and raging storms obey. His, his speaking, it, it's powerful. It's, it's a declaration. It's a command. It's a promise. But here, because of Moses' prayer, he relents from what he had spoken He changes his mind, which is incredible. Is your brain kind of boggled yet? My my brain at this stage was was a little bit boggled. At the risk of uh, boggling you even more, verse 14 is is even more mind-boggling when you read what Moses wrote elsewhere. He wrote uh, Numbers as well. In Numbers 23, 19, he wrote, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. The word that he used for change his mind in Numbers, it's the exact same word that he uses in Exodus 23 for relenting. So in one place, Moses seems to say God changes his mind, and then in another place, he says God never changes his mind. What's going on? Is Moses contradicting himself? Is the Bible contradicting itself? What's happening there? Quickly, let's remember to keep our like humility cloaks on. Um, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are not mine. I'm a speck. I'm creation, not creator. Who am I to judge you whom I cannot understand? But I'm a little confused, which has to be okay sometimes. All right. But would you help us understand what's going on here? And I'll be honest, um, uh, I'm not smart enough. I, I needed help on this. I've enjoyed reading and listening and learning a lot. So um, can I relay some stuff that I've been taught to you this morning? Um, disclaimer, not a bunch of original thoughts this morning. Um, David Platt, he's a pastor in, in D.C. He said this. He said, in this picture in Exodus 23, God is presented here and there are three truths that must be reckoned with. Um, the, these three truths that we have to hold in tension because on the surface they can look like contradictions. But truths like these in the Bible are not so much contradictions to be resolved as they are tensions to be managed. 
And that's a good principle to have when reading your Bible, that more than one truth can be true at the same time. Um, that that, that more than one thing can be true, and we must learn to hold the truth's intention, which some of us hate, right? Some of you are like systems people. You like things cut and dry, and this will annoy you. Uh, But let me gently remind you of Isaiah 55 and encourage you to get over it, okay? (laughs) Because this... (laughs) It happens in nature. It happens in science, right? We, we, there's things in nature that we seem to, these are irreconcilable contradictions until we learn more, um, until some aspect of reality is discovered and we understand more. So if it's that way with nature, how much more so is it with God? So, so Platt points out, and I think he's right, that there are three truths that are on display in this story that can seem like contradictions, but if we actually learn to hold them in tension and, 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 and patiently understand them all, um, it's an incredibly beautiful and powerful story. And it actually does something in us and, and spurs us on. So quickly, let's look at the three truths. The first one is God's purposes are unchanging. That's the first truth. That's true. Um, the scriptures make this abundantly clear. Again, Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. God isn't like us. He's, he's eternal. He's, he's, he's not creation. He's creator. He doesn't learn anything. He, he doesn't gain insight that he lacked before that makes him reevaluate his plans. He doesn't change his mind in that way. And let me read you what he says to the prophet Isaiah. He says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, My plan will take place and I will do all my will. I call a bird from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken. So I will also bring it about. I have planned it. I will also do it. He commands birds to come. He commands people from far off country. It's his plan. He says, I will do it. And it's that, that, that truth is all through the New Testament. Ephesians 1, Romans 11, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. He's before all things, and in all things hold together. In other words, nothing happens outside of his control or his plan. So that's the first truth. God's purposes are unchanging. Truth number two is God's plans are unfolding. God's plans are unfolding. So in Exodus 32... We just read it. God changes his course of action based on Moses' prayer. And notice this. It's God who creates this moment of crisis. He is setting up this circumstance to give Moses this chance to plead with him. Let me say that again. It's God who creates this moment of crisis, setting up circumstances to give Moses the chance to plead with him. So we as the readers of the story, we have this great advantage, don't we? We get to step back, we get to see the whole picture, and we get to see God putting in place these pieces and setting up this situation. Okay, so God knows what's happening at the foot of the mountain, doesn't he? He's all-knowing. He's not surprised by what's happening. It's not like they're, he's talking to Moses and he's distracted and this is happening. Then he turns around and he's like, oh, he's not shocked by that. He fully knows the people are getting angsty. He, he knows they're wondering if they've been abandoned. So he could have sent Moses down quicker, couldn't he have? Or he could have said, Moses, go down, tell him we're nearly done, and then come back up and we'll fix this. But he didn't. He knows what's happening, but he continues on. Notice it's, it's, it's God who tells Moses what's going on at the foot of the mountain. He didn't have to tell him that. 
He could have let Moses find that out on his own. He could have acted to destroy them without telling Moses his plans. He's God. He has that right. But he tells Moses what's happening, and he tells him what he's going to do. Why? Because when you step back, you see he's giving Moses this opportunity to respond. He's giving Moses this just chance to pray. What, what does Moses remind God of in his prayers? He says, remember the promises that you made to this family, God. Did God forget the promises? No, he made the promises. It was God who made those promises, and Moses recalls those and, and almost like reminds God of them. He throws them back at him. He quotes that back to him. In other words, God places Moses in this situation in which Moses would see the problem He'd be aware of it. He would remember God's promise, and then he would petition God to change the course of action that he'd announced. God wanted Moses to ask this, so he sovereignly puts him in this place where he would see this problem, then remind God of his promise, which God would then agree to uphold. So God's true intentions weren't revealed all at once. He unfolded them to Moses over time. Hold that. The third truth we see is our prayers are instrumental. So again, when we read the story in real time, step back into the story, read it in real time, Moses' prayer did change things. Just take it at face value. Without Moses' prayer, take that bit out, God would have destroyed Israel. But then you step back and you see God set things up for Moses to pray that bold prayer. But nevertheless, Moses' words were instrumental in getting God to change his course of action. Do you begin to see when you're able to hold those three truths in tension? And although our finite brains can begin to hurt a little, those truths begin to make the story very beautiful. Actually quite powerful. God's purposes are unchanging, yet his plans are unfolding And our prayers are instrumental to the unfolding of those plans, of his unchanging purposes. For me, it's that last truth that we kind of get tripped up on because it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, almost. Like, what if Moses hadn't prayed in that moment? Would it have meant that God wouldn't have spared them? Would that have meant that it wasn't God's will to save them after all? Or what about like you have a friend who God wants you to pray for so that he can save them, but you don't do that. Does that mean his will is that he's not going to save them? Or your mind begins to spin faster and faster. But listen, the story in the Bible in Exodus 32, it's not there so we'll get lost in this maze of philosophical speculation. Um, Alexander Archibald Hodge, how great of a name is that? A.A. Hodge, he's this uh, 19th century Princeton theologian. He would have this conversation that he would have with his students to help them avoid getting lost in this philosophical quagmire by asking these questions. He'd ask, does God know the day that you'll die? The answer is yes. God has numbered our days, the Bible tells us. God God knows the day that you'll die. He appointed that. And then he'd ask, is there anything you can do to change that day? And the answer is obviously no. Then he would say, then why eat? Well, to live. You'll, 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 what happens if you don't eat? Well, you'll die. Well, then if you don't eat, would that be the day that God appointed for you to die? 
It's the same trouble that we have with Moses' story. But the point in him asking those questions is stop asking stupid questions and eat. (laughs) Because eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for living. Do you see in, in, in his argument, there are two things that are true at the same time. God knows the span of your, your life. That's true. But he's also, what's also true is he's preordained for you to eat food in order to keep you living until that day comes. Both are true at the same time. And it's the same with prayer. Prayer is the preordained way that God has appointed for executing his will on earth. J.D. Greer writes, just as we eat today because it keeps us alive, even while we simultaneously know that there's nothing we can do about that appointed day of death, so we pray because it is a means by which God does his work on earth. Just as God has hardwired our bodies to run on food, so he has hardwired his purposes so they are actualized by prayer. You see what I'm getting at? So all of these three things are true in Exodus and in our lives. God's purposes are unchanging, yet his plans are unfolding, and our prayers are instrumental in his purposes being worked out. Please don't become stuck in the mysteries about God's decrees. That's not what you're invited to do here. If you go away being stuck with that, and then I failed you. Exodus 32, it's an invitation to consider that God has put you in a place to intervene. It's simply an invitation to pray. Because what you see on that day in the mountain, Moses wasn't bogged down by dwelling on the unchangeable purposes of God, which again, he knew. He wrote about that later. He didn't allow himself to get bogged down by that and confused by that. Instead, what he did was he focused on the unchanging promises of God and he applied them to the situation. And that led him to pray. And in the unfolding story of God's unchanging purposes, God used his prayers to save a nation. Isn't that incredible? Did God have mercy on the Israelites because that was part of his immovable plan for his people? Yes. And did God have mercy on the Israelites because Moses Moses bravely and boldly implored God not to destroy them? Also, yes. Greer says, when you put those three truths together, the unchanging nature of God's plan, the unfolding revelation of those plans, and the instrumentality of our prayers in bringing about those plans, what do you get? You've God sovereignly placing people in certain situations precisely for the purpose of them praying his purposes. God sovereignly placing people in certain situations precisely for the purpose of them praying his promises. Don't you know that God has placed you exactly where you are in your life right now? He wants you to be attentive. He wants you to look around and to see the problems, maybe experience the problems, see what's broken. Maybe it's something inside of you that's broken. Maybe it's broken relationships. Maybe it's something that is wrecking your neighborhood or your city. Wherever you are, you're not there by accident, but by divine appointment. You're there to pray. And do your prayers change things? Moses would say, you better believe it. 
by his divine power, God sovereignly puts you in a situation to see a problem and to change it through your prayers. Do we believe this? What would our prayers be like if we actually believed that God used them to change the world? They would be desperate, they would be bold, they would be persistent, wouldn't they? We would never stop praying, would we? We would never stop looking around and we would pray continually, we pray without ceasing. Why do we pray? Because prayer is the means by which God has appointed to accomplish his purposes It's through obedient, bold, persistent prayers. They're important. God uses them to change things in this world. Moses prayed, and the Lord relented. Um, And listen, God relenting here on this mountain, it's not a one-off occurrence. Um, so, So it's not like this is some weird contradiction in the Bible that we have to explain somehow. It's actually quite congruent with his character through the rest of Scripture. Because one of the principles, one of the, the rules of undergirding Scripture is the Lord relents when we repent. Like God does often change his mind. He, he does pull back his wrath. And he always does that when we repent. That's what we see in Jonah, right? God sends Jonah to Nineveh to tell them in 40 days the city's going to be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, they hear that and they believe in God and they repent. They, 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 they call out to God. And then in Jonah 3.10 it says, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them. It's the same story, same kind of story, right? Nineveh are evil. God's righteous anger burns He's going to destroy them, but he sends Jonah to create this opportunity for God to relent. It's the story of the gospel. We are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. We are, by nature, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, hopeless. And God's righteous punishment for our sins is death. But Jesus is sent to give us an opportunity to repent and for God to relent. And when we do, God relents. He changes his mind, not based on anything we've done, but on solely in what his son has done on the cross. So God relents when we repent. And often he relents when we intercede in prayer. Um, not always, but often. And so it's with humility, we, we trust his sovereignty, and, we, and it's because of his power that we pray and we ask him, not in spite of his providence, but because of it, we pray boldly. And so you might be thinking, the, sim- the system's rigged, <laughs> right? God's plans are unchanging, but he sovereignly places us in a, in a spot to use our prayers to unfold those plans. Is the system rigged? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that should spur us on. It's meant to to spur us to action, not to remain idle. The way you know that you've misunderstood the meaning of God's sovereignty is if it keeps you from doing things. True understanding of God's sovereignty means that we understand that God has sovereignly put us in a place as an instrument of his blessing. Like his work on earth flows through channels and those channels are our faith-filled prayers and our faith-filled obedience. When we, when we understand that, it spurs us to action, doesn't it? 
It empowers us to pray, not to sit back and to do nothing. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller says there's, there's generally two mistakes that we make in prayer. The first error is we simply fail to pray. We just don't ask God. And he says this is the belief that God does nothing. The second mistake, the second error, is when we pray with selfish motives. And he says this is the belief that God does my will. And so the first belief is God does nothing. The second belief is God does my will. And he says uh, both of those are huge problems. And the answer is to ask boldly and to surrender completely. To ask bold prayers and then surrender completely. And the greatest example you have of this is is in Mark 14, 36, with Jesus in the garden. He's praying in the garden and he's facing death on a cross that night. And what does he pray? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's a bold prayer. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That, that's him asking boldly and then surrendering completely. We're to pray like Jesus. And I wonder if those two, of those two errors, our biggest danger is actually the first one. Do we pray with selfish motives? Often. But I wonder if our biggest error is the first one. But we just don't pray. We stopped asking. And maybe that's from this... It's this fear of praying that comes from this fear of not getting an immediate yes, right? Which happens. Paul didn't get his thorn in the flesh removed. Jesus didn't get the cup removed. So I wonder if we're so afraid of that that we don't even ask. And what happens is we can subtly become deists. Do you know a deist? A deist believes that God created the world and then he just steps back. And he says, it's up to you now. I'm, I'm not going to intervene at all. He's not involved anymore. It's unbelief. Um, how many of us are guilty of that? How many of you have that friend or that family member that you just think, there's no way. That there's no way God's going to save them. It's never going to happen. Or maybe it's something inside you. God... You change my heart. These, this sin, this addiction. Oh, there's no way. And so we don't pray. And we need to be reminded that all through the scriptures, God presents himself, yes, as someone who is sovereign over all and he's working out his purposes, but he also presents himself as someone who will listen. And he's moved and he has responded to our prayers. Both of those things are true. Do you know what Jesus' most frequent teaching about prayer was? And you have his model prayer, Lord's Prayer. And, but when you read all of his teachings on prayer, you read all the parables, you have all the conversations that he had with people. Do you know what point Jesus makes most often about prayer? Just pray. <laughs> Would you just ask me? You ask not because you, you have not because you ask not. Would you just come to me and ask me? Earthly fathers know how to give gifts to their, to their children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
Just ask. It may not be the answer that that you envisioned, but it's going to be good. Would you just ask? Is this where we struggle with prayer the most? It's not necessarily the discipline side of things, the rhythms, the finding the time and the space, although it can be, is the main reason we struggle to pray because of unbelief. We just don't believe it will do anything. Is the root problem of our prayerlessness unbelief? God's not going to do anything. That is not what Moses believed. Moses interceded because he was burdened for the people, which is incredible. When you read the last line of of what God says to him, he he says, I'm going to destroy them so that I can make a great nation out of you. That's a, that's a, I don't know what I've done in that situation. Me? Parks from here on out? Like, that sounds like a pretty good deal. But Moses is burdened. So he intercedes, and he believed the prayer would do something. He was bold enough to ask face-to-face with God. He was bold enough to to, to ask him and to remember the promises that God made and to, to throw that back at him, and he asked him to change the situation. What would happen if we as a church started to believe that as well? What would happen what would happen if we had that kind of belief, if we recognized the privilege of being his instruments of change and started praying these desperate, bold, persistent prayers? You don't have to be super eloquent. You don't have to know all the Bible verses. You just have to live with an awareness that our sovereign God puts you in a place to see a problem, to believe his promise, and to release his power through prayer and obedience. David Platt wrote, praying, is the way, praying this way is not just part of our Christian calling, it's our primary call. Do you think of prayer in that way? That it's our primary call. It's not the thing that, that upholds all the stuff that we do. It's our primary call. It's the primary thing that we do. One of the reasons God saved you was so that you can pray, so that you would be an instrument of blessing in the world. He appointed you to ask him for things that he wants to give. Christian, God has chosen you. He has chosen you just as he had chosen Moses to pray as part of his sovereign plan. He's put you right where you are so that we may look around and and see the problems and then enter in his presence and say, God, let your kingdom come here. Let, Let your promises come true in this place. Let your will be done in this moment. That's why in our vision statement at Village, we desire to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, love each other, love our city, as we join God in the renewal of all things. We get to participate. We, We get to join Him in the renewal of this broken world. And the primary way we do that is through prayer. There's lots to do. There's lots of ministry things to do, and we'll do those things. But our first and primary calling is prayer. Uh, Lord, teach us to be a church that prays. Would you stand with me and we'll pray.
And Lord, we come to you um, humbly. And we will come to you remembering who you are. You're the God that has no beginning, that has no end. You're the God who speaks creation into being and then upholds it with your power. You are so mighty. You are so perfect. You are so just. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your thoughts are so much higher than ours. We come to you with that humility of being creation. We also come to you with that eagerness, Lord, with that, with that joy of, of being invited close to you. We thank you for that, 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 that invitation to, to draw near, to, to, to come to your waters, to come and, and taste and see, to come and enjoy you, to come and, and know you. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you that, Lord, uh, you pursue us. And it's, it's never up to us to, to come and get you and to come and seek you out. It's you seeking out, us out, Lord. It's always been that way. It's you, Jesus, leaving heaven to enter into our darkness, to, to chase us down, to, 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 to capture us, Lord. We thank you that you've done that. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the brothers and the sisters in this room that have gathered together uh, to worship you, uh, to be reminded of the hope that we have. Lord, I pray you'd, you'd help us understand a little bit uh, of, of what you've called us to do. Would you make us a church that prays, Lord? Would you give us that, uh, that eagerness to, to pray without ceasing, to, to ma- no matter where we are, to, to, to know of your presence, but to, to see the brokenness, Lord, and to, to simply pray, to simply ask you. It's a one-line prayer. Maybe it's a 10-minute prayer. You just want us to ask. You want us to be instruments of blessing in this city. Would you do that for us, Lord? That's only gonna happen if, if you'd give it to us, if you, if you stir that up in us. So we pray that you do that. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.